You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Romans. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join him now. Romans chapter 9. And uh, we're going to be looking at verses 24 through 33 this morning. And let's just go ahead and stand and we're going to read verse 14 through 33 just to get an idea of the context of the passage. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. You will say to me then, what does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he'd prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people. And her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness. Because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith, but Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone. As it's written, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Lord God, we lift up this time in your word. We love this deep chapter of theology, God, and as we just dive into the depths, we pray that your spirit would give us understanding. Lord, take us just beyond ourselves and our physical ability to comprehend And God, just place in us a deep love for you and your plan of salvation for both the Jews and the Gentiles, for the whole world. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. And we worship you in your justice. In the name of Jesus, we all pray. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Making it through chapter 9. I know you thought it would never happen. Just passing a year in the book of Romans, we'll remember that chapters 1 through 3 of the book of Romans show us the depravity of man, 
that there is nobody righteous or innocent in and of themselves. Every single man and woman has sinned, has exchanged the glory that belongs to the creator. And we've de-godded God and we've worshiped the created thing and created things and people and places. We're depraved and we're in desperate need of a savior. Chapters one through three say, chapter one tells us that the absolute pagan is going to hell. And chapter two tells us that the religious person who is self-righteous and, and takes stock in their own good works, quote unquote, that both the pagan and the self-righteous are destined for hell. And chapter three tells us that there is none good. There is none inherently righteous. No, not one. We are not justified by the works of the, of the, uh, of the law and of the flesh, but we're justified by faith. And chapters four and five bear witness to that, using Abraham as an example, using David as an example. And so we see that justification, that doctrinal word, which means that we are declared righteous in the sight of God, it's a one-time act where the gavel is slammed down on the throne room of heaven and God declares this person, Rory, or this person, enter in your name. They are justified. They are just as if they never sinned because of the, their faith that they've placed in my son's sacrifice on the cross justification, a glorious doctrinal word. Well, then chapters six through eight of the book of Romans speak to us of another big word, sanctification. And this sanctification, it's not a one-time deal, but it's a process that happens after justification. And it means that we're being continually set apart from our old life, from the world's uh, entrapment of us. Set apart from that depravity day by day by day by day. We're being conformed into the image of God. And chapter 7 tells us that that transformation, it doesn't happen by rules and regulations that we put upon ourselves because we'll fail every time. But chapter 8 tells us that it's the Holy Spirit that empowers us. After we're justified, he empowers us and gives us the grace to obey our God. And so we have the glorious doctrines of justification by grace through faith and sanctification by grace through faith, not by works. At the end of chapter eight, there's this, you know, there's this praise, there's this worship that because we've been justified by grace, because we're being set apart by grace, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We're talking height, depth, angels, demons, you know, things present, things to come. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Well, then the question is asked as Paul gets into chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, because he lays out his deep burden, his continual grief in his heart for his brothers, the Israelites, who are perishing. They're going to hell. And Paul says, I'd rather go to hell so that my brothers, the Israelites, could be saved. My brothers, the, the people who have all of these privileges listed in verses 4 and 5. The privileges of the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, the promises. They have all the forefathers of the faith. And the Messiah came through them. Man, I would go to hell that my brethren with all these privileges could be saved. Well, then the critic speaks up. Wait a second. If nothing can separate us from the love of God, like you're saying, Paul, like this gospel says, then why are you saying that some of the Israelites are going to hell? 
Why are you saying that even though they have all these privileges, they're going to burn in the lake of fire for all eternity? It opens up a big question and Paul answers it in verses 6 through 8 when he says it's not that the word of God has taken no effect, but they are not all Israel who are of Israel. And he just brings out the big guns and he just blows their mind and he says, not everyone who's of the ethnic line of Israel, of the ethnic line of Abraham, is what the scriptures were talking about. But there is a spiritual Israel. The people that followed Father Abraham, and they believed on the Lord Jesus. They believed in the promises of God, and it was accounted to them for righteousness. Verse 7 says, nor are they all children because they're the seed of Abraham, or just because they came from the loins of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. And so he lays out this doctrinal truth that just because you have the race of Abraham doesn't mean you're saved. And so we've d dived in the last four weeks that it's about grace, not race. You guys remembering that? You can write that in the margin of your Bible. It's about grace, not race. And Paul used two Old Testament examples to prove that point. He used Abraham's sons, Ishmael and Isaac, to make that point. How one of them was chosen to be the bearer of this promise. That son, Isaac, where Ishmael was not chosen to be the bearer of that. And so there was election. There was choosing there. And then someone would say, well, that's because Ishmael had a different mom. You know, the mom was the bond woman. Of course you didn't choose Ishmael. And he says, okay, let's bring it down a little deeper. Let's look at uh, Jacob and Esau. They were twins. They had the same seed in the same womb, and they were born on the same day. And yet one of them was chosen, and one of them was preferred over the other, Jacob over Esau. And so he's using the point that just because these boys, Ishmael and Esau, were of the bloodline of Abraham, doesn't mean they were part of the blessing and of the covenant. There is election, and God has sovereign purpose and rights in electing some and not others. A deep, deep subject, very controversial. We've been diving it to the last uh, four or five weeks, and you can get online and listen to it. We're not going to get into that today. But what we are going to get in, into is God's plan for Israel. And that's what chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Romans are about. Chapter 9 being about Israel's past, their rejection of the Messiah. Chapter 10 being about Israel's present state, they're still rejecting the Messiah. I was over there this year. I'll tell you, they don't really like the guy, Jesus. And then chapter 11, Israel's future, that one day all Israel will be saved. Deep stuff about Israel, but there's application for us, we who are Gentiles, today. <clears throat> there's shocking truth in chapter 9 both to the Jews and to the Gentiles. We're going to look at three things that are shocking. At the end of verse uh, 33, the word offense is used. And that word offense is the word scandalo. And that's exactly what we're looking at in chapter 9. It's a great scandalo or a great scandal. A shocking scandal. 
right up there with Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky. You know, it'll make us all gasp for breath. As we look at chapter 9, as we just keep going through the text, verses 24 through 33, we are shocked by, first of all, who is included and who is excluded. Secondly, we are shocked by why. Why they are included and excluded. And thirdly, we are shocked by the manner that they are shown to be included and excluded. And so first of all, we see here in verses 24 through 33 that the mercy was a message to Gentiles foretold by the prophets. This mercy was a message for a remnant of Israel foretold by the prophets. And in verses 24 through 29, we're going to read it. We get into this first shocking thing. We're shocked by who's included and who's excluded. Who's in and who's out. Don't you want to know who's who in the kingdom of God? Well, let's just read it. 24 through 29. Even us whom he called. Not of the Jews only, you might underline that word only, but also of the Gentiles. Verse 25, Romans chapter 9. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, uh, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Then we get into Isaiah's prophecies in verse 27. Isaiah also cried out concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved for he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. So the shocking truth of who is included and who is excluded, who's in and who's out, goes against the popular opinion that not only was in the Jews' mind, not only were in the Romans' mind that we're reading this letter, but the shocking truth that's going to blow you away, many of you in this room, is that we think most people attain a spiritual position by religious works. We think that. We default to that. That's part of our fallen condition. That if somebody does religious works, that gets them in. They have attained. They now have a spiritual position by religious exercise. That is popular view even within the church today, but it is anti-gospel. When we see holy people doing works, we automatically think that they are in. And when we see pagan people, we say, oh, they are out. They are flat out pagans. But enter in the gospel of grace and things are flipped totally upside down. The reason why is that God stops every presumptuous mouth and every arrogant mouth that will exalt itself against God saying, I am righteous by myself. I don't need you. It's the same heart that was in Lucifer when he fell. I am good enough. I don't need you. That was our theological topic of conversation on the way to church today when Russell was asking that very question. Why did Lucifer fall? Why did he exalt himself against God? It's at the heart of rebellion 
self-righteousness and self-exaltation. And so shocking things that we just read here, things that should make us guffaw, are that not only are not all Israel saved, that's shocking to the Jews, but also the Gentiles are included. That's shocking to the Gentiles. Actually, both are shocking to both. The Jews would think we're saved because we come from the loins of Abraham. And Paul says, you're not saved because of that. (gasps) The Gentiles who think that they've been ostracized from the kingdom of God, we have nothing to do with the Jews. And the Jews thinking, yes, we've ostracized the Gentiles. They have nothing to do with us. We hear today in Romans chapter 9 that the Gentiles are included in God's salvation plan. These are both very shocking things. The Gentiles were aliens. In the same way we think of aliens, I remember when I watched the movie Signs, and you guys know the story that in the little corn, you know, growing area of farmland, aliens came and were doing all that crop artwork or whatever they call it, and the little girl comes into her dad's bedroom in the middle of the night, and she says, Daddy, there's a man outside my window, you know? (laughs) And so he goes in, he's like, oh, honey, you know And I remember when the lightning flashes outside the window and there's something standing on top of the barn holding onto the rooster wind thingy, you know? And I remember the first time I saw that, ah, you know? We took the youth group to see it in the theaters. That's what kind of a youth pastor I was. You know, then later on in the movie, you know, there's footage of the alien landings on Earth and, you know, there's a birthday party going on in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, and the little kids are like looking out the window and and the alien just walks by for a split second and we're all just like, ah, you know? It's... <laughs> and you know the veterinarian locks a monster in his in his uh cellar there in his kitchen and mel gibson goes over there and he's looking underneath the cellar like where is he and it comes out to get him under oh you know the whole theater screams because of aliens all right i am telling you that was the jewish mentality towards the gentiles a gentiles coming along you brush up against them ah, you know and they go and they burn their clothes And they repent before God. You know, to the Jews, the Gentiles were aliens. They were strangers. And literally they were referred to as dogs. The Pharisees would wake up every morning and just pray, I thank you God that I am not a dog, a woman, or a Gentile. Great people, great people. Fun to share lunch with. The Gentiles were people that were basically considered scavengers. People that were roaming. They were people that verse 30 tells us that were not pursuing righteousness. And that's an understatement. And many of you have within your testimony, that's me. I was not pursuing righteousness. In fact, I was that pagan. I was pursuing unrighteousness. If it was sinful and forbidden in scripture, I would go do it. But then there's also people here, so don't start pointing the finger. You are more like the pharisaical do-gooders, the self-righteous. And you would be going to the same hell as the pagan if it weren't for the grace of God. And so when the do-gooders and the pagans are both getting saved, there's scandal that takes place. There's offense that takes place. And we see these prophecies from Hosea and Isaiah saying exactly how it would all work out. Hosea, first of all, is quoted in verse uh, 24 and 25. He was a prophet who lived in Israel about 800 years before Jesus came. As he was there in Israel, another nation was rising up and becoming great. 
They were conquering all sorts of countries and working their way, approaching Israel's border. This was the nation of Assyria. Well, because Israel was doing pretty good militarily, and their economy wasn't doing so bad, Israel thought that they were safe, and yet they were practicing idolatry, all kinds of sexual immorality and child sacrifice. And the prophets would come and they would warn Israel that you think you're safe from Assyria, but you're not safe. And you think that you're righteous, but you're not righteous. Just as you don't think the Assyrians are a threat, it's true to you spiritually You think that you are safe, but you're not. You think that you're spiritual, but you're not. You worship me with your lips, but your heart's far from me. Assyria is going to come and they are going to take you out, Israel. And that's exactly what happened historically. That was what was going on in Hosea's time. Now, Hosea was a special prophet. His life and his wife were going to be pictures of what God was going to do In the nation of Israel, some of you know the story. Hosea was commanded to marry a prostitute. Her name was Gomer. Two things wrong with that command. Two deal killers right there. Gomer, not one of the top ten names on your list there. Someone on the Andy Griffith show, perhaps. But also to marry a prostitute. She would, in their marriage, more than cheat on him. She would more than just do prostitution acts for money. She would actively go out and have sexual relationships with men, have willful affairs against Hosea, and she would end up having three different children from three different sexual encounters. Now, don't start being judgmental, because in the book of Hosea, guess what? You're not Hosea, (laughs) You're actually Gomer. You're the one who is a spiritual adulterer daily. And God is Hosea, the one that loves and graciously forgives and pursues. As she has these three different children, Hosea names these children. He's commanded to name these children in a way that would be a picture of Israel. The first child's name means scattered. And he speaks to the nation of Israel through his child's name. And he's able to really sympathize with God's heart for the nation's spiritual adultery because his wife has been committing adultery. He's able to speak the heart of God out and say, look, Israel, look at the offspring that you have produced. You think that you are planted, but you are scattered. Just like my first child's name is scattered. The second child's name was lo rumabab. It means not beloved. And Hosea would speak to Israel and say, you say you love me, but you don't. I'm not beloved to you, and in your idolatry, you're not beloved to me. Third child's name was lo ami. It means not my people. Israel, you would say that you are my people, but you are not my people. All the while, God did this to put on a powerful display of redemption. Hosea could have left her, saying in very strong language, you are a whore. 
You've had three children from three different men, and those are just a few of who you've been spending your time with. But God calls Hosea to go into her, her world of harlotry and to redeem her out of it, to take her back and to show the world what redemption is. He renames the children. Those who were scattered, he renames and says, I've called you planted. Those who were not loved, I'm going to call you beloved. Those who were not my people, I'm going to call you my people. That's what we're reading referenced in Romans chapter 9, this beautiful story of redemption within Israel. That you deserve to be wiped out, but I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to show you grace. I'm going to show you mercy. I'm going to plant you. I am going to love you. I'm going to call you my people. The promise is that there will be a restoration of Israel, and we'll see that later on in chapter 11. And you say, well, that's great, but what does it have to do with me? You know, Paul and Peter both use this passage out of Hosea to show what God will do to the Gentiles. They take these applications from the Old Testament regarding redemption and apply it to us today. Here's how it worked. The same principle is at work in any saving work, any redemptive work. Nobody deserves it. Everybody is morally inadequate and God shows grace and God shows mercy. It's grace that Abraham was called out of a pagan people to be called the children of God. It's grace that Israel would be saved at all. They didn't deserve it. They were all depraved. And it's grace that we, the Gentiles, would ever know God. As verse 8 says, that is those who are the children of the flesh. These are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. So here's the scandal. Scandal number one. God calls sinful, wicked people like Gomer to be his people. We have the parable of the prodigal son. This is a scandalous parable that Jesus spoke forth to the Jews who were self-righteous. We call it the parable of the prodigal son. It would be better named the parable of the self-righteous brother, but it would be best named the parable of the forgiving father. You guys know the story. The father had two sons that worked out there on the farm. And one of the sons, he was working, he was saying, man, I am hating the heat. I am hating the calluses and the blisters on my hands. I'm just going to take my inheritance and I'm going to go live it up and party. You know, over, I'm going to go to the city. I'm going to party, taking my inheritance. So he asks dad for the inheritance. Dad gives it to him and he goes out and he lives it up in luxury for a while. Enjoy his life. Just like the scriptures tell us, sin is pleasurable but it's for a season. As he's living it up, he runs out of money and all the friends that he had had, they were only friends because of money. They abandon him. He begins to starve. He finds work on a pig farm, but the rations are so inadequate that as he's feeding the pigs, the slop, these unclean animals that he wasn't supposed to be around, he begins to get hungry for the food the pigs were eating. Hungry for the slop. 
And he says, what am I doing eating this slop? It, I could at least go back to my dad's house and I could just apologize and ask for forgiveness and say, I know I'm not worthy to be your son. I'll work as a slave. Just please, no more feeding pigs. And as the son comes back up the lane to his father's farm, what's the father doing? He's not doing what many of us would do as fathers, and he's not doing what many of our fathers did as fathers, sitting there at the lane with his arms crossed, really considering if he should take us back or not, putting a guilt trip on us of all the ways that we've failed and all the way our sin has affected the family farm, and if you do it one more time, then, you know, it's not at all how the father was. The father actually saw the son a far way off, and he began to sprint towards the son. And he essentially tackles the son and begins, as the Greek says, continually to kiss him. I love to do that to my son. He's a lot younger. But just to just smother him with kisses. It's a multi-time during the day occurrence. And this son is taken back and restored. He's given the father's ring. He's brought a clean garment the fatted calf is killed and a party is set up to celebrate this son who was lost but now is found. Great story. But there's another character, the character of the older brother. The character who never left, has been here faithfully working. And you're taking my inheritance and squandering it on my little bro. In fact, that's my fatted calf that you just killed. And he's bitter and he's angry. And he essentially says to his little brother and to his dad, I have worked. I have worked. I deserve this. And that is one of the great messages of the prodigal son is that the person who doesn't deserve it is receiving salvation. But the older brother who is bitter and says, I have worked and is self-righteous, the scene closes with him being outside, not enjoying the feast. And so within the new covenant, God is creating a new people. A humanity that's defined in Jesus Christ, the people of God, not defined by race, but grace. Not defined by pace, but grace. Not defined by class or culture, but grace. As 1 Peter 2.9, this is where Peter quotes from Hosea. It says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. God has chosen to us to be a royal priesthood, a new special people. We were outside. We once did not know mercy, and God has made this new special people. And the only way that this can happen, this new people, no longer strangers, no longer aliens, no longer dogs, but sons of the living God, came through Christ's death. We come to the Isaiah passages. 
And in the Isaiah prophecy, we see that Isaiah has a similar situation with Hosea, and his life would often correlate with the people that he was prophesying to. His time was a picture of God's saving work. Again, just as Syria was approaching the borders of Israel, the people thought they were safe. And Isaiah would say, you are not safe. Israel is coming under God's judgment and Assyria would overtake them with the judgment of God. Why? Because they deserved judgment. Because they killed and murdered the prophets. Because they defiled the temple. Because they worshiped the created thing rather than the uh, creature, or excuse me, rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Because they would not turn and repent from their sins. Because they were guilty. And we have to remember that in the book of Isaiah and in Israeli history, we're not dealing with innocent people, morally neutral people. But even in Israel, we're dealing with rebellious sinners. God is just and right to judge Israel. And if it wasn't for God's mercy, as Isaiah prophesies here, we read it in Romans 9, the whole nation would have been wiped out. But by grace, a remnant is saved. Because they deserved it? No, because of grace. And so we see here in the passage that no one can presume upon God's grace. He doesn't owe people. People don't deserve salvation even those who are privileged, like Israel, and have the privileges we read of in, chapter, in verse 4 and 5 here, God does not owe them. There's application today for us, those who were raised in a Christian country, America. In God we trust. One nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. God, 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 in our nation's hymns. In our constitution, God doesn't owe us because we were a Christian country or grew up in a Christian home. And many of you here think that God owes you, that you are entitled to salvation simply because you were raised in a moral home or a Christian home. Maybe you went to a Christian school. You know, as a youth pastor for eight years, and I can tell you, those kids that went to the Christian school, they were some of the most paganistic people I'd ever seen. Desperately in need of a savior. God owes us no salvation. He owes us judgment, no matter what our heritage shows. And as we read these passages, this should produce humility within us. Understanding that there's nothing within us that would warrant salvation, only God's wrath. It should produce within us humility before God and before other people. This passage shows us the gospel. And when we understand the gospel, it severs racism. It severs favoritism. It ends hostility between us and God. And it also would end hostility between us and others. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 2 verse 11. It says, therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at the time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, 
But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, having been brought near by the blood of Christ. Do you understand that we, you, me, us, were aliens? We were estranged from the grace of God. We had no part in the commonwealth of Israel. We were strangers. And by grace, we've been adopted. We've been brought in. We've been given an inheritance, eternal life. And blessings and privileges. So how dare you or I show any form of racism? How dare you and I show any sort of favoritism or prejudice? Think about it. It's in us. Think of all the even little prejudices you have in your heart. Those little thoughts that you have when people pass by. Or when you go through that part of town. Or when you go to this country or this city. We have prejudice. We think we're better than people. It's all a result of sin. But Jesus died and bled to release us from those privileges. And we say that we agree with this. And yeah, racism is bad. And don't judge. And all that stuff. But within the church, when we see certain people from certain statuses, in our town, we go to the other end of the room. They're the last people that we would consider sharing our home with or sharing our life with or discipling. You, my friend, have a faulty view of grace. You think that you're better than this person, that there's something inside you, inherent within you, that gives you favor with God to some degree, even a tiny degree. You think you're better, you're more righteous than this individual. Your sins nailed Jesus to the cross, just like these individuals sinned in. Maybe you're like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. You have this sense of superiority over people. You struggle or you're jealous over people. You feel superior. You hate people. You know what hate is? It's when we choose not to love someone. It's another version of rejection. And there is no room within the church for that. The gospel does not allow it. And so may God broaden and expand our hearts because of the gospel. Because he's made a place by his grace for us to come in and partake of the privileges and the blessings that were for the nation of Israel. Not by our works, not by our status, but by grace. The shocking example number two that we see from the text is found in verse 30 through 32. And it is the question, why have these people been included or excluded? What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. Again, we come back to the main theme of the book of Romans. The hook of the book is that we are saved by grace through faith, not of works. 
Righteousness comes. Chapter 3 of Romans tells us, not by the works of the flesh or by the deeds of the law, but by grace through faith. Philippians 3.9 says that we're found in Jesus, not having our own righteousness, righteousness, our own rightness from the law, but that which is through faith. Righteousness that is from God by faith. Now, we see in these verses, 30 through 32, that righteousness and justification must be attained. It is not enough to merely be elected or called by the sovereign work of God. There must be the attaining of righteousness. And what does attain mean? Attain means to grab hold of something in a near violent way. Picture someone drowning and going under the water and slipping away and the Coast Guard ship comes up and they reach their hands down and all that that drowning person who has no merit whatsoever can do is violently grab for that hand. Attaining righteousness. It comes not by works of the flesh or by the law, but by grace through faith. How is this righteousness attained? I'm going to tell you, take notes. You attain righteousness by loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, never sinning, fulfilling the law of God completely and totally, and loving everybody on the planet. Has anybody here attained that? Romans 3 says that nobody has, but that we've all fallen short of the glory of God. There is no will and there is no work that makes us right in the sight of God. And you ask people, why should God let you into heaven? Why should you get into heaven? And people say, I'm a good person. Or they say, well, I've tried to give a, live a good life. Or what's important is the heart. You've got to have a good heart. Here's the scandal of the gospel. Many who think they will be in will be out. Many who think they are good will find that they are not good. They are unrighteous. That their standards were not the standard to measure up to. And why is this? Why will they be out? Because they tried to earn it, the text says. They wouldn't attain it by faith, like the scriptures tell us, to simply surrender and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But they tried to work it. And faith, my friends, is the exact opposite of working. It's the exact opposite of trusting in yourself. And so we realize by the Spirit of God that we're guilty, and we respond to the calling to be saved by His grace. The gospel accounts are so full of people who think that they're excluded, who can never be saved, they would think and finding themselves uh, experiencing the grace of God. In Luke chapter 7, let's read this account real quick, where Jesus is invited into a Pharisee's house to eat with him. And one thing I love about Jesus, he led by example, loving to eat. He went into this Pharisee's house in Luke chapter 7, verse 36. And when he went into the house, he sat down to eat. Verse 37, and behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil, 
and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair from her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Verse 39 of Luke 7. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who's touching him. For she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, Teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other far less, 50. And when they had nothing to which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, Well, I suppose the one who forgave, whom he forgave more. And he said to him, You've rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she's washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. And she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven... The same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. No matter if you are the pagan that is known in the town for being that sinner. This woman, this man, they've practiced all forms of heinous deeds. You can come to the feet of Jesus with nothing in your hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. That can be the song of your heart today. And you can be forgiven of every wicked deed. You can be adopted into the promises of God that are for Israel. Even now, as the message goes forth, your legal aid is coming to you in your head and saying, no, 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 don't listen to Rory. You are a good person. Here's a list of good things that you've done. You don't need redemption. You don't need a savior. You just need this good heart that you've got. And you've got it. Reading a book right now by a man named Chad Williams, who was a Navy SEAL, who in every way possible tried to fulfill his life by external things, being a professional skateboarder and having all the sponsorships, being a guy with money from those sponsorships and just partying and living it up and buying the best pickup and driving fast things and getting all sorts of crazy highs and buzzes, even coming and becoming a Navy SEAL and thinking that he would attain, he would be good, but being empty and finding that he had not attained, he'd not been satisfied. Again, trying to find satisfaction in the world, he would get crazy drunk, get in continual fights, and as a Navy SEAL, he would win every time. And he would justify his fights by saying later on that evening, I hope he's okay. He would justify himself before God by saying, I've got a good heart. I wondered if this person was okay. 
I put the Navy SEAL smackdown on him, but I hope he's okay. And he came one day to a Greg Laurie Harvest Crusade, specifically telling his girlfriend that Greg Laurie at the end of the message was going to give an altar call and ask people to receive Jesus and you can raise your hand and you can stand up and go down front. And he told his girlfriend, do not respond. We are going to go home. We are going to get into my parents' garage, get the keg that I've been hiding and go party. But as Greg Laurie was preaching, the Holy Spirit met him. He had an encounter with God. And that very night he got saved and became an evangelist, quit the Navy SEALs. And now he works for the Greg Laurie Harvest Crusade. But much like Chad Williams, there's some of you here who that legal aid comes to, your, comes to your mind as the gospel is preached and tells you that you're good on your own. And that's the shocking truth, this third shocking truth that we close with. And that is the manner by which you are included and excluded. It's what you do with Jesus. That's shocking. That that is the deciding point. What you do with Jesus and your little legal aid in your, in your head that's so self-righteous and is telling you that you are good and you don't need Jesus, you will find yourself out on that day. These closing verses, 32, just the last sentence in 32. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. This Isaiah mixture passage is quoted here by Paul where he speaks of this cornerstone that was a chief architectural block. It set the standard for the rest of the building. Uh, it would be set for the foundation and the rest of the foundation would be built. And whatever was built upon this cornerstone would make the building. But instead of building upon this foundation stone, Paul says people tripped over it. They tripped over it and they hated this thing. It was an offense. Romans 11, 11 says that the Jews have stumbled at this stumbling stone. But praise God, they haven't stumbled that they should fall as a nation even. Luke 2, 34, there's a prophecy over Jesus that he'd be destined for the rise and fall of many in, in Israel. Jesus is this stumbling stone. He's this cornerstone that should be the foundation of the faith. And yet, when do we stumble? We stumble when we're looking somewhere else. And the Jews were looking somewhere else. They were looking at themselves and their own righteousness. And so they tripped over the very thing they were to build their faith upon. 1 Corinthians, Paul says that when Jesus is preached as crucified, it's a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greek. Isaiah in chapter 8 verse 14 says that this stumbling stone and the rock of offense is a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Why is Jesus such an offense? Why is Jesus such a stumbling stone? Because he says, lay down all of yourself, all of your pride, all of your works, and just come to me and receive. And we are a prideful people. That is the last thing we want. Like a college student who can't pay their bills, can't pay their apartment, can't pay their car payment. And when mom offers to, you know, just give them the gift to pay for the apartment and pay for the car, they say, no, mom, I don't want, I'll pay you back. I'll work it off. 
I don't want you holding this over my head. People don't want to die to self in coming to Jesus and receive the free gift of grace. We can trip over Jesus or we can trust in Jesus. We can rest in Jesus or we can be broken by Jesus. As Matthew 21, 42 says, Have you not read in the scriptures, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it was marvelous in our eyes. And then verse 44 says, And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. You know what Jesus is saying to you today is lay down your self-righteousness. Come to this chief cornerstone and fall down on him just with just a surrendering fall. You might kind of hurt yourself as you fall. You might bruise yourself as you fall. You just fall so hard and surrender against this rock of Jesus. But if you don't do that today, one day, this stone will fall on you. And you won't be bruised. You'll be ground to powder. Where is this righteousness attained from? Look at chapter 10, verse 4. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. We've seen God's sovereignty in this chapter, big time. But we also see here in 10.4 and then back in 9.33 that whoever puts their faith in him, whoever believes in Jesus, will not be put to shame. Man's responsibility is that they must trust in Jesus' salvation work. And if you believe and trust in him, you'll never be put to shame. Your sins will be forgiven you and you'll be washed as white as snow. Even though you came through these double doors today with garments caked with filth, today, right now where you sit, your garments can be made as white as snow. In Acts 16.30, we close with this scripture. Kendra, you can come on up. In Acts 16.30, he brought them out and said, Sirs, this is the Philippian jailer, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And so they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. There are some here today, you came into this room scattered, but Jesus wants to plant you. You came into this room not beloved, but Jesus wants to call you beloved. And you came into this room not part of God's people, but he wants to say to you today, you're my people. And how does that happen? By believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Let's put our Bibles down and just prepare our hearts for worship. We're gonna enter into communion and just partake of the Lord's Supper. And as we do, we cling to the cross this morning. Simply to the cross do we cling. Nothing in our hands do we bring. We lay down our self, God. We lay down our pride. We lay down that part of us that wants to work, that wants to attain. And Lord, we rest in your grace this morning. Lord, no longer do we judge 
people, Lord, as if we're better than them. No longer do we show prejudice or racism or self-righteousness. This person is a sinner. Do you know what they've done? When, Lord God, the gospel levels the playing field. And we thank you today that the righteousness can be attained, but it's from the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we take communion today, you can just receive and remember the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Remember the cross, remember him being crushed for our iniquities, being bruised for our transgressions. Remember his blood being absolutely spilt. Remember his body being absolutely broken. As we close in song, you can come forward. If you're a Christian today, if you rest in Jesus, if you trust in him, if you've attained righteousness through Christ, you can come today and partake of the elements of communion. But if you're here and you've rejected this message, we just ask you not to partake. The Bible says that you heap judgment upon yourself. If you would partake of the elements without a believing heart, the good news, you can believe right now where you're at, you can respond. Say, Lord, I believe. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for righteousness attained through the Lord Jesus. Let's worship. Come on forward. Grab the elements during this last song. Go back to your seats and partake when you're ready. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.